Good evening and welcome to another Wednesday evening class at the Traverse City Church of Christ. If you have your Bibles and would like to follow along, we will be going through the book of Revelation and we'll be in Revelation chapter 20 and, Lord willing, perhaps start chapter 21 tonight. Before we get started, let's go to God in a word of prayer. Father, we count it a joy and a blessing to be given this evening. We pray that as we look into your word that it will guide us and that the blessings that you have designed for us, that those who will read and hear and heed your words, uh, that they may fall upon us. May we be ever diligent to do the things according to your will. May we be watching for that day when your son shall return to take us home to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we are in Revelation chapter 20, and I'd like to read the entirety of the chapter, beginning in verse 1, Revelation chapter 20. There are 15 verses, should take us about three minutes. Verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations, and the, that deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there you have it. Chapter 20. As I began to mention last week, we did just begin chapter 20, and we're going to go through those verses again. As we've come through chapter 19 and 20, and, and really the last four or five chapters, we have been seeing very, we'll call it apocalyptic speech, but 
The word for revelation in Greek is apocalyptos. But when we speak of something that is apocalyptic, we understand that it is uh, very much couched in symbolic speech. And so the symbolism that's being used, we must be careful because once we have committed to either making something real or figurative, we are bound to follow that uh, trail wherever it leads. And it may not lead doctrinally to where it is correct. So as we go through chapter 20, we may be challenged by what we read according to what we have heard all of our lives. But keep an open mind as we look at these. And what is about to happen in chapter 20? Well, first, the devil in Rome is defeated. And second, the victorious Christians under persecution. Third, the devil will be defeated in the future as well. It is unfortunate that the chapters are separated here, 19 and 20, because the scene really continues from chapter 19. So in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, it begins, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And so thus far in Revelation, we have seen six judgments that have come down. We've seen the seals in chapter 6, verses 12 through 17, a judgment there. The trumpets, the judgment of the world city in chapter 11, verses 14 through 19. In chapter, or the third one is the harvest of the earth in chapter 11, verses 14 through 19, both of those together. We've seen the vials of wrath in chapter 16, verses 12 through 20. We've seen the judgment of the harlot in chapter 18, verses 21 through 24. And we've seen the judgment of the scarlet beast in chapter 19, verses 19 through 21. Here in chapter 20 is the seventh judgment is going to happen here in chapter 20. Interesting that we see things happen in series of seven, even though it doesn't say there's going to be seven judgments. We can go back and count and recount each one of those. There are seven judgments that are given. So beginning in chapter 12, we were introduced to the three persecuting enemies of Christ. In chapter 12 and verse 3, the first was the dragon, and it's identified in chapter 12 and verse 9 as Satan. We see those names that is given to him. Chapter 13 and verse 1, the second one is the beast rising out of the sea, and it's Rome and its civil ruling power. And see Daniel chapter 7, because it identifies exactly this same beast. Chapter 13 and verse 11, we have the beast rising out of the earth, the city of Rome, the religious ruling power of Rome, the concilia of Rome, forcing emperor worship, called the false prophet here in 19, chapter 19 and verse 20. They are, however, defeated in reverse order. The harlot in chapter 18, the beast in chapter 19, and here Satan in chapter 20. What is the symbolism of the key and the chain? Well, we're about to see in verse 2. What is the bottomless pit? Well, we have seen this pit before. If we went back to Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it tells us, And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft smoke rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. So uh, the symbolism that is there, but this uh, star that was fallen, he was given the key to the shaft. All right. The bottomless pit or the abyss is not a real place under the earth. It is symbolic of a realm wherein evil is maintained and kept from the affairs of men. It is not to be found on a map or any other tangible place. If uh, I think I mentioned last week, if 
uh, oil well drillers were to, uh, to drill in Australia, they could not drill deep enough to come to that bottomless pit or that place where uh, these are being kept. No matter what Hollywood tells us, no matter what fiction writers tell us, this is not a real place. Uh, the chains, what are chains? Well, chains are that which binds and locks. We understand the symbolism of this. And keys are that which allows and prevents entry and exit of something. Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus said, I will give you, he's speaking to Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, Jesus isn't telling the disciples, uh, to be the apostles, that they'll just make stuff up and whatever they make up, well, that's, that's what we're stuck with. No, he's saying, I'm going to give you the keys so that the things that you bind. In Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22 we read, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. We're obviously talking about the Messiah. This is a messianic prophecy. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. We recognize this from the book of Revelation. So uh, this easily identifiable what they're talking about. And Revelation 1.18, here's the, the, one of the identifying markers here. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This is referring to Christ talking about himself. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 3, 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, I write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens, and no one will shut, and shuts, and no one opens. So this key is readily identifiable. We understand the symbolism that is contained therein. Now, as we talk about chains, 2 Peter and Jude 1:6 read almost identical. Peter writes, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. The same thing that Jude says. He has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness. Now, is this a place to where we can go to a map and put an X there and say, this is where they're being held, either on earth or somewhere in outer space in the universe or underneath? No, it's not a real place. It's symbolic. Chains means that they are being kept. So as we come down to Verses 2 and 3, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. What did he bind him with? A chain. Was the chain real? No. But he's talking about his ability here. And threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So we can see a a lot of things that are going on here. That angel bound him for a thousand years. And we're about to look at, at one of the, the great dividing factors here in the book of Revelation. If we, if we admit that the thousand years is symbolic, then we're going to have to, uh, or real, then we are, we are bound to make everything either real or symbolic uh, in this. Okay? So as we come on, notice the names that are given to that deceiver of the nations. He's called the dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, and he's called Satan. Uh, we read just earlier in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1, I saw the star fallen from heaven. Verse 11 identifies him. They have the king over them, the angel of the bottom, bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he's called Apollyon. He's, he's death. It's talking about uh, making reference to Satan here. Uh, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and saint. The same identifying uh, names that are given in chapter 12, 9 are now used in chapter 20. We go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. And, and 
this may seem a lot of review to some people, but there are perhaps some who have never really been able to identify who this Satan is. Because we go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? This is the first time that we see the serpent, uh, Satan, in, in Scripture. Paul says to the church at Corinth, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So now we see, what does the 1,000 stand for? In a book of symbolism, why have people suddenly made this symbol a literal period of time? All numbers in Revelation are symbolic in their nature. It stands for completeness, fullness, and totality. Now, how can I make a bold statement like this? Easy. We go back to Scripture and look. The psalmist writes in Psalm 50 and verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. And I've mentioned this over and over. The county that I live in here in northwest Michigan I, I dare say easily has a thousand hills. If it doesn't, then this county and the next one over easily have a thousand. Well, what about the next county over? Does he not own the cattle on those? No, he's speaking of a thousand hills. He owns everything. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Is it only to thousands? Or is it to millions? No, the thousand represents many, many. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Well, what about the one thousand and first generation? Is God limited to those thousand? No, it's speaking of completeness. First Chronicles 16.15 Remember this covenant forever, the word that He commanded for a thousand generations. Psalm 105.8 He remembers His covenant forever the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. All right. Again, what about the next generation? One thousand is a figure representing God's perfection as it pertains to his faithfulness. We read in these verses. Why do I use so many verses? Well, we can see that the scriptures, when they speak of something that is a thousand, is speaking of completeness. Why would we change that meaning suddenly when we come to the only verses in the Bible that speak about a thousand-year reign? And it's contrary to what we read in Scripture. But suddenly, now we're forced into a different doctrine if we say that these thousand years are literal. We've changed everything. Thus far, we're able to go back into the Old Testament and look at over and over how the things that we have read in the book of Revelation, we can find that God has used as symbolism in the Old Testament. But suddenly, we're going to change this thousand and make it literal. It cannot fit. Absolutely cannot fit. Uh, listening to a, uh, a radio program that I just happened to turn on this morning, and, and the man was talking about the rapture. Well, if you have a concordance, please look up the term rapture and let me know if you find it, because I have not been able to find it, nor has anyone I've ever known who looked it up. There is no such thing as a rapture. Uh, there's no such thing as that Antichrist who's suddenly going to appear. The, the term Antichrist never occurs. Here in chapter 20, a lot of false doctrines have been set forth, talking about this Antichrist that's going to come. It makes for good movies to come out of Hollywood, but it's not true. Paul talks about the Antichrist, and John talks about the Antichrist. He said they are already in the world. 
in the first century. This isn't something we're waiting for. Sorry, I got a little carried away there. <laughs> We've already seen this 1,000 in use symbolically in the book of Revelation. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000. Uh, we read in Revelation 7:4, And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then in the 12 tribes, which are not the complete list of the 12 tribes, because we find that one of the tribes is missing and one has been added. But how can it be that the smallest tribe has 12,000 and the largest, many times the size of that smaller one, also has 12,000? It cannot be a literal 12,000. It is symbolic of the completeness of those. Revelation 14, 1 also tells us, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Uh, so we, we have seen this thousand used uh, already in the book of Revelation. How did Satan deceive? And it says that he's going to be bound so that he doesn't deceive. We go back to Revelation chapter 9 and verse 2. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Well, is there somewhere we could go on the map and look for a bottomless pit, a hole in the earth to where smoke comes out of it? Are they talking about a volcano? No, they're not talking about a volcano. What does darkness represent in the Bible? What does it represent? 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Constantly being compared. Go right down to Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were in darkness. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, Paul says in Ephesians 5.11. Ephesians 6.12, But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. 1 Thessalonians 5.4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. And finally, uh, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So, we, so it's easy to see that, that darkness is representative of that which deceives and that which is of evil. And this smoke that rose is part of that deception that Satan uses uh, there in that first century. Revelation 13, 4 and 5, And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Uh, this is uh, referring to that deception which they are using by the authority that has been given to them. Revelation 13, 11 through 12 tells us, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb representing that it, it looked like it was harmless, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So they have used that deception uh, in the earth to force people to worship the first beast. So we come down to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
again, an awful lot of theology and an awful lot of bad theology has come out of these uh, verses here. But as we look at it, now we begin to ask ourselves some questions. Exactly what did John see? Who is seated on the thrones? Is it plural? Who else does John see? Who are the other two groups? Do souls die? Yes or no? That's not a trick question. You need to answer that question. Do souls die? In order for something or someone to be resurrected, they must first die. Is that true or false? Yes or no? Is this a scene from heaven after the judgment? Okay. Revelation 2, 26 and 27. While you're thinking of all the answers to those questions. To the one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, I to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And so uh, we looked at, uh, at those questions. There's going to be more questions that we're going to ask as we look at this, as we have looked at those people from chapter 4. And we're able to read, he says, I saw thrones. And there's a plurality. And seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And he also sees the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast and had not received the mark on its foreheads and hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. I know it seems as though we're skipping over verse 4, but we're going to come back to that because uh, we have to look at that in its, uh, its entirety here. So we, we go back to Revelation chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10. When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out, with a loud voice. These are the people that we are seeing in chapter 20, those who had been slain and beheaded. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now there are some who claim that the Roman Empire did not persecute Christians, but that would be false because we go back to the book of Daniel and Daniel clearly says that they will wear out the saints. This fourth kingdom will wear out the saints. Well, he's not talking about them exercising them so that they become strong or making them work really hard. He's talking about the persecution that they have. They have been slain for the word of God, and now we're seeing them back again in chapter 20 because they were told, wait a little bit longer, just wait. And when they have waited, they will see the reward that they are going to get. Revelation chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, it said, Do not harm the earth or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And so we, we have, uh, oftentimes we'll find groups that are uh, contrasted. We have one group that is from God, and transversely we have another group that it represents just the opposite. And we have seen this, and we're going to see it, in the Bride of Christ as compared to the, uh, the, scarlet, the woman on the scarlet beast, the prostitute, the harlot. Uh, we see that they have, uh, I won't call them alter egos, but they are the opposites here. Okay, we have those who are sealed. Then we're gonna f we'll see those who have not been sealed. If the thousand years are figurative for the devil being bound, then this thousand years must also be figurative. 
It is not a time period or a time stamp signature, but a concept of a reward to the faithful. This scene, the judgment of the dragon, the beast and the false prophet, is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. I made mention of this, now we read it. Now remember, faith comes by hearing, not just by, uh, by me saying that it's so. You must get it from the scripture. As I looked, we read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of the days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. And continuing on in verse 24, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change times and law. And I would stop right there and just to say, uh, he believes himself to be one who is of the uh, ability that God has to think he can change times and the law. Uh, that's, and that would be typical of the Roman emperors who were thought of as gods. And the Roman concilia uh, were forcing people to believe and worship the uh, emperors as God. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. This, in chapter 20 of Revelation, is a fulfillment of this prophecy right here. Because we're talking about the fourth kingdom. And the fourth kingdom, uh, as we have seen earlier, that fourth kingdom is Rome. The first one was Nebuchadnezzar. We go back to Daniel chapter 2, and, Dan and Nebuchadnezzar had seen this vision in which he saw... Uh, in it four kingdoms. He saw himself. Daniel identifies this. He says, you are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. And then there's going to be another kingdom that's going to rise. That's the Medo-Persians. They took over, and we actually see this fulfilled in later in the, te the text of uh, Daniel, Daniel, believe, chapter 6. After that was the kingdom of Greece, and the fourth one is the kingdom of Rome. And Jesus said, in, uh, pardon me, Daniel said that in that fourth kingdom, in the time of that fourth kingdom, a kingdom is going to be set up that shall never be destroyed. That kingdom that's being talked about here, uh, that he is wearing out the saints, that is the church. The church was established and the church shall never, as Jesus told Peter, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, so verse 27 here, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. This is the nature of the church. The kingdom of God shall not be destroyed. So Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. They're not saying at this point in Revelation 11 that this is when it started, but they're just simply making this statement, declaring, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Not at that moment, but they're simply saying that it has. What does the first, first resurrection represent? Is it symbolical? Well, did Elijah literally return? Was he resurrected as Malachi 4 prophesied? No, he wasn't, but in the spirit he came in John the Baptist. We're going to read in a few moments about Ezekiel 37. Did God literally resurrect Israel and bring them back? Remember, Ezekiel was writing in the days of those exiles, uh, the first exiles that were taken 
prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586. Uh, I believe that Ezekiel was taken in 606. So he's writing at this time, but he's giving assurance to uh, Judah that God will indeed bring them back. Well, they didn't resurrect all the dead, but he's talking about that the Jews would come back, and they did come back. Read for yourself in Ezra and Nehemiah. So Matthew 17, 10 through 12, and the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they please. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Who's he talking about? He's talking about John the Baptist came back. The spirit of Elijah was resurrected in John the Baptist. In Ezekiel 37, uh, therefore prophesy and say, you may have, I'll digress just a little bit here, you may have heard this, the song about the, uh, the leg bones connected to the hip bone. Well, this is where the song came from, is the resurrection. Talk about those uh, bones are put together, sinews, everything was put back together. They're not talking about the literal resurrection. They're talking about uh, Judah, Israel, uh, coming back and possessing Palestine once again, which they did when they came back. Uh, was fulfilled. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. Is he talking about a literal resurrection? No, he's talking about bringing Israel back to her homeland there in Palestine. And they're not talking about the 21st century or 1948. They're talking about in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. Not the end of time, but a time when God shall return the Jews to Jerusalem. And those who are martyred will share in this victory, just as those who did not receive the mark and those who refused to worship the beast. This is the first resurrection, not a literal resurrection, but figurative. We often mistake this as talking about the end time when God shall resurrect. This is not, nor is the rest of chapter 20 or 21 or 22. I'll give you a little preview on that. Even though you may always have thought it was, it's really talking about these people in the first century. Who is reigning for 1,000 years here in this verse? Yes, Christ is ruling, but He has been ruling and will continue to rule. Jesus wasn't just reigning for a literal 1,000 years. It is the saints who are ruling with Christ for a thousand years, but not a literal thousand years. Well, who are the saints that are now ruling in place of? Okay, who are they ruling in place of? They're ruling in place of Rome. She is defeated. How do we know that? Well, because we know that uh, the, the beast and the false prophet and Satan were all bound up. They are now ruling for that thousand years, which is not a literal thousand years, it is figurative. It is symbolic of the complete victory that the saints have over Rome, which was persecuting them. The question is asked, could the first resurrection be baptism? Okay, well, baptism does represent a resurrection, as Paul explains in Romans 6 and Colossians 2. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. There's the reference to the resurrection in baptism. In Romans 6, 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we're united with Him in baptism. We are buried with Him in the water. We come back up. We shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. When we come out of the water, we are symbolically 
representative of coming out of the grave just as Christ was. But unforgiven sinners are baptized. They die to sin and are raised to newness of life and are saved. That is, uh, we're going to take that as being true because it is true. Uh, those people that are baptized, they are the unforgiven sinners. At that point, they're unforgiven. But when they're baptized, they are forgiven. In Revelation 20, those resurrected are already Christ. They are Christians who were persecuted and martyred for Christ and the Word. This is a vision, a picture. It's not telling us that there will be two or more resurrections. There are people that say there are multiple resurrections. This vision is telling those who are reading in the first century that they might die, but it is not the end. They are being shown that Satan, who used Rome as his instrument, is holy and completely defeated. They are being shown that in spite of their own apparent defeat, and some of those are defeated by death. Remember those who were under the throne in Revelation chapter 6? They are indeed the victors, and they will reign in victory. Not Satan, not Caesar, and not Rome. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 8. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will come out to deceive the nations, and there are uh, deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, who do you think Gog and Magog are? And when will this thousand years end when Satan will be released from his prison? Has Satan already been released from his prison? Is Satan in the prison right now? Well, if Satan's in prison right now and he can't deceive us, then what is happening in the world today? And what has been happening in the world for the last nearly 2,000 years? You have to ask yourself that question. Thousand years and when is that thousand years ended? Well, the thousand years are ended when Rome was completely defeated. Well, now Satan, remember, he's at war with the saints. He's going to come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, the entire world, Gog and Magog. Well, we have seen Gog and Magog before in history. But what is being represented in verses 7 through 10? What is the time period? When will this happen? Who is Gog and Magog? You have to ask yourself those questions. Ezekiel chapter 38, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Gog and the land of Magog. There those two are from Ezekiel 38. The chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him. And say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Meshech and Tubal. And I will bring you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out, and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and shield, wielding swords, Persia, Cush, and Put. Cush uh, and Put are uh, names that are given many times for Egypt. Per Persia, Cush, and Put are with them, all of them. So we're talking about a vast, vast army of people, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer, uh, Gomer and all his hordes, Beth Togarah, from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you. So they're talking about this enemy of Israel here. Uh, and not talking about the future. Ezekiel's not talking about something well into the future. He's talking about the enemies of Israel, all of these people here. And uh, it continues on, chapters 38 and 39, and we're only reading just a small, very small portion of it to get the idea. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you 
about and drive you forward and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand. I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall in the mountains of Israel, you and all your hordes and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to the birds of the prey, every sword of the beast of the field to be devoured. And here's where we read the symbolism, the exact same symbolism we're going to read in Revelation chapter 20. You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands. They shall know that I am the Lord. Why? Isn't that exactly what happened to those in Revelation chapter 20, that fire came down and destroyed them? The defeat of Satan, the devil, as it pertains to his influence over the beast and the false prophet, Rome and her civil, religious, and false emperor worship, was achieved, and he is bound for a thousand years, symbolic for perfectly and completely defeated. But Satan will rise again to use another enemy to try to defeat the people of God. This is his sole purpose for existence now. That's all Satan is here for, is the fight against the people of God. Gog and Magog simply represent the enemies of the people of God in any and all future events. Why are we reading about this defeat? Are, is there a timestamp? Are they identified? No. The people of God in that time frame that are reading this are going to know that Satan is defeated as it pertains to who is persecuting them. And whatever happens in the future, he is certainly going to be defeated again. Revelation 9 and 10. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. What is the camp of the saints and the beloved city? Is it Jerusalem? Is it Rome? Is it Traverse City? I'm speaking facetiously, of course. No, the camp of the saints, uh, the camp in the Old Testament was known as, in that time, the tabernacle. And the beloved city in the time of the temple is symbolic of, the beloved city in the time of the temple was known as Jerusalem, but it is symbolic of the church. And we're going to begin to see here in chapter 20, and then in 20 and 21, that the picture is being painted not of heaven, but of the church. And this will be so plain when you see it that it is not a picture of heaven. It is like heaven, but it is a picture of the church. What is the scene? Is it literal? No. It is the message that even after Satan comes back, whenever and wherever, he will be defeated. His defeat is not in question. It is absolute and it is going to happen. We might be tempted to see the next scene as the Day of Judgment, but let's consider what follows in chapter 20 and 21 and see if this is really what's happening. If the previous scene is speaking of the victory of the saints, then this scene is picturing the fate of those who are not the victors. This is the same language used in the Old Testament as we will see. Who is missing from the upcoming scene? And as good, as good detectives, you have to ask this question. Who is missing from the scene? When, when John describes a scene, he's given everything that we need to know. And sometimes the details that are there are, are left to, for us to, to ponder. We may not understand every single aspect of it. But yes, the faithful in Christ who are martyred, they are in the previous scene. 
If this is the final judgment, then where are those who are still alive when Christ returns? I'll give you a moment to think about that. If this is the final scene and only the dead are there, where are those who are still alive when Christ returns? Paul plainly says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. If this is the final judgment, where are all the people who are still alive on earth? Because those whose names were not found, they're said that they are dead. We find those people who were uh, judged, the faithful, they're dead. But where are all of those who are alive? There are, by estimates today, seven and a half billion people on the earth. Where are the people who are alive if this is the final judgment? You have to answer that question. John 5, 28 and 29, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. We certainly understand that the, those who are dead are going to be resurrected, uh, whether they're going to the resurrection of life, they're highlighted in blue, or the resurrection of judgment, which is not the reward, but it is a punishment. Uh, the, those people will come back. Job asked the question, if a man dies, will he live again? The answer is absolutely yes. Paul told the church in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What does he mean by sleep? We're not all going to die. There are some who are still going to be alive. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. I point this out so as to leave the possibility, the possibility that maybe this in the following chapter may not be representing the final judgment and heaven, but that it may represent the victory of the saints and the defeat of the enemies of the Christians to whom this was written to in the first century. It would make sense to them. What is the purpose of this book? The purpose of this book is to give hope and encouragement in the face of trials, tribulation, persecution, and martyrdom. We've already seen that from the very beginning of the book. It talks about the time is at hand for these things to happen. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Again, here we have the dead, but where are those who are all alive? Psalms 89 14 tells us uh, about the throne of God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Acts 17, 31, 32 is Paul is in Athens and he tells about this time. He says, because he, talking about God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again. The resurrection of the dead has been controversial in all areas of the world and cultures throughout time. But Paul assures us there will be a resurrection of the dead because God has fixed a day when he will judge the world. A day. One day. Not several days, not several resurrections, but one day. 
Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. When it talked about that the uh, earth fled from the, uh, heaven and earth fled, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away. Second Peter 3, 7 says, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 12, as I looked, Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Thousands, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This is the judgment in Revelation chapter 20, prophesied. So, verses 13 to 14, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. The death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is represented by the second death? Well, in Isaiah chapter 13, the judgment of Babylon. Isaiah 34, the judgment upon Edom. Jeremiah 4, the judgment upon Babylon. Micah 1, judgment upon Israel and Judah. Zephaniah 1, the judgment against Judah and Jerusalem. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, the judgment against the fourth kingdom, Rome. That's what's represented by the second death. We can understand that when we read these. Here is Isaiah chapter 13, and we're going to see these verses all relate to uh, this same type of judgment scenario. The oracle concerning Babylon in Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, on a bare hill raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones, and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as, a, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of the kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of His indignation, to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. We continue on. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make a land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heavens and their constellations will not give their light, and the sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and man mankind than the gold of a fur. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of His fierce anger. When was this day of the Lord's fierce anger? Was that at the end of the world? Nope. He's talking about the, uh, the, uh, against uh, Babylon here. In Isaiah chapter 34, verses 8 through 13, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. 
but the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch out the line of confusion over it, and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call to kingdom, and its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and an abode of ostriches. Now, here we have apocalyptic language at its finest. Here we see that we, uh, the Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Well, if all of this is happening and its smoke goes up forever and ever, how is it that the hawk and porcupine, the owl and the raven, are able to live there? How is it? How is it that jackals are able to go there as well as ostriches? It's not talking about a physical destruction of the land. We can go to that and point to it on a map, which is east of Jordan, the River Jordan, in the land in the Middle East. And we can see that there is not smoke coming up from it. He's talking about the utter and complete destruction of Edom, that it shall never rise again. Apocalyptic language. Jeremiah 4, 19-24. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent, for I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Crash follows hard on crash. The whole land is laid waste. Suddenly my tents are laid waste, my curtains in a moment. How long must I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good they know not. I looked on the earth, and behold, it was without form and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and behold, they were quaking, and all the hills moving to and fro. Did that literally happen? No. He's talking about Judah. Talking about unfaithful Judah and the destruction of her. Micah chapter 1 and verse 1 through 5. The word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you, peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Now, did the mountains melt under him literally? Were the valleys literally split open? Was it like wax before fire, like waters poured down a steep place? No, he's talking about the utter and complete destruction of Judah and Samaria, the northern kingdoms. So it is the apocalyptic language that we find over and over, and it's the same language that is being used here in uh, chapter 20 of the book of Revelation. In Zephaniah 1.6, uh, the highlighted, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away birds of the heavens and fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Well, was everything swept away? No, but he's using the apocalyptic language to say how complete the destruction will be. And so Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 11, I've highlighted, And the books were opened. Alas, I looked, the beast was killed and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy from Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, when those books were opened. What is the opposite of the destruction of the ungodly world? It is the creation of a new world. 
We have seen the destruction here in chapter 20. We will see the new creation in chapter 21. I'll put this here and we'll just uh, look at the first verse. We're going to see this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So I'll, I'll stop right there uh, as we see. We have seen the apocalyptic language of destruction. Now we're going to see the apocalyptic language of a new earth. And you will be absolutely amazed when you realize that the new heaven and the new earth are talking about the church. There, I gave it away. So, as we end our class for uh, today, be prepared for chapter 21 next week. And thank you very much for tuning in as we have looked at the book of Revelation in chapter 20 this week and look forward to next week. And as we end our class, let's end with a word of prayer. Father, what a joy it is to look into your word. And joyful it is to know that there is victory in your son. There is victory in being children of yours. There is victory in being in the church. May we truly appreciate all that you have done for us in ways that we cannot even imagine. And Father, our prayers go out for all of those who are suffering for your word, who are being persecuted and martyred throughout the world. We pray, Father, that uh, you will give them the strength that they will, uh, they will remain conquerors and victorious in their faith, that they will not falter in this day of trial. We pray for nations that they will seek you for wisdom, and we pray for peace in our world, not that we might just be able to live in comfort, but that we might have the opportunity to freely spread your word, and all the more as we see the day approaching. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.